Welcome back to the Ed Morrissey Show podcast. I am really happy to introduce one of my friends who's just got a brand new book out, Charlie Spearing, Amateur Hour, Kamala Harris in the White House, Everybody's Nightmare. <laughs> Here it is, <laughs> Charlie Spearing with Everybody's Nightmare on the right, at least. Uh, welcome. I, we don't do this very often with you, and I, I'm asking myself why as I'm introducing you. Oh, thanks for having me, Ed. Yeah, it was kind of fun just for... For a year, just buckling down and doing a long-term project. And the funnest part is just getting back out, seeing everybody's face again and talking about the book and reconnecting. It's great. Oh, that is great. It's great to talk to you again. And I'm assuming after all this is said and done, you're going to get back to doing all that great uh, reporting that you usually do. Um, or maybe you've got another book on the way. We can talk a little bit about that. But first off, let's talk about Amateur Hour, Kamala Harris in the White House, because let's face it. If we reelect Joe Biden, this is exactly what the outcome is going to be. Yeah, that was kind of the process of going through ideas for a book. I'd have always long wanted to do a book and being a White House correspondent, you know, you look at every president and, you know, when it was Trump, it's like, well, everybody's writing books about Trump. <laughs> and then when it was Joe Biden, it was like, well, they've pretty much written all there is to say about Joe Biden. But what looking down the road, it's like, well, People are maybe they're sick of Biden, but nobody's actually written a book about Kamala Harris. Not, you know, a, a sort of a critical, skeptical book looking at the life and career of Kamala Harris. And that's sort of what er Democrats are staring at right now and, and grappling with. So that was certainly a huge part of why I decided to dive into her career and just see exactly how she got here. You know, and I was going to introduce you with your with your bio, and I just was going to off the top of my head say that you were the White House correspondent for Washington Examiner, which was true, but you actually were at Breitbart News. Um, you'd moved right. over to Breitbart News before you did this. Yeah, I started my career working for Robert Novak until he had to step down because of brain cancer, and then I moved to the Washington Examiner for several years, and then ultimately ended up at Breitbart for several years covering a uh, little at the end of the Obama administration, the Trump administration, and then of course, the beginning of the Biden administration, all under Breitbart. Yep. So, uh, you know, again, we'll, maybe we'll get to that, uh, to, to the post book uh, phase at some other time. Let's let's stick with this book. You've been around a while, so you had a lot of opportunity to do this research, to understand what the uh, what the issues were with Kamala Harris as um running mate and vice president, and even prior to that as a candidate for the uh, Democrat nomination. Um, when you go back, I mean, a lot of people didn't know who Ka uh, Kamala Harris was when she first emerged in um, as, uh, uh, you know, in the U.S. Senate. But she had a kind of a track record in California. And as you relate <laughs> in, <laughs> in this book, it wasn't really a great track record. Um, but she did have one mentor that really mattered, and it's the one that everybody <laughs> thinks it was. Yeah. Now, you look in any comment section of any Kamala article, and there's lots of really crude jokes about Willie Brown. Well, taking taking an investigative look at it, you know, what is the, what is the truth of their relationship and how did he help her you know, like achieve this skyrocketing like uncanny ability to skyrocket up into the into California politics. And a lot of it was, you know, he first met Kamala Harris and Kamala Harris was 29 and Willie Brown is 60. Willie Brown is running for mayor of San Francisco. And even though he's, you know, technically married, he's been long estranged from his wife, Blanche. 
And so it's kind of a dual it's kind of a dual purpose relationship, right? Willie Brown needs to prove that he can have a stable relationship with an adult woman, even though still ha still half his age. He's trying to get away from sort of the playboy persona. Like he still has it, but if he's able to lock down a serious relationship, maybe that helps him in the polls. Harris is also relatively unknown. She's a assistant district attorney in Alameda County. So not even working in San Francisco at this time. And then, so he gets her on his arm, but he also gets her two pretty plump positions on state boards. And these are kind of positions where you attend a meeting, one or two meetings a month, and you get paid a significant amount of money to be on these boards. Oh, yeah. I did some research. It's about $400,000 in the past, in three to four years of her life during this early part of her career. And that's a lot of money. But then when you look at it in terms of 90s money compared to today, that's almost eight, that's over $800,000 in today's money. So that certainly helped her with her career. Yeah. You know, as a, as a native California, I can tell you there's tons of these commissions and mm -hmm. a lot of people park their, um, their political allies on these commissions. And, and it's not like they're not significant commissions. There's a lot of regulation in California and these commissions exercise quite a bit of regulatory power. And so the people who end up on these things matter, uh, whether they're competent to do to be there or not. It's just really old style um, patronage sinecures, basically. And uh, Willie Brown is um, is a master of that. It was the master of that. Um, <laughs> I was there during the Willie Brown heyday. So I remember okay. Willie Brown. Very, I did very not well. know you were from California. That is amazing. I always kind of figured you as a, as a sort of a Midwestern type, but. Uh... <laughs> well, well, maybe, maybe, you know, temperamentally, but no, I'm a, I'm a California native. I moved away in, in 97. Okay. I was, I was 34 when I moved out and now I'm down in Texas. Oh, wow. Yeah. I guess that's what happens to all smart people from California. They end up in Texas. <laughs> You're a regular Joe Rogan a pioneer. <laughs> well, I, I think so. If I'd gone to Tennessee, I would have been a Ben Shapiro kind of guy. But um, yeah. um, or, or, I think he went in Florida. Anyway, off the topic. But yeah, I mean, uh, Willie Brown was very powerful. My my uncle, who just recently passed away, was a two-term assemblyman when Willie okay. Brown was Speaker of the Assembly. The yeah. Ayatollah of the Assembly was his nickname. I think he coined I, his own nickname. <laughs> he did. Very Willie Brownish uh, to uh -huh. do that. He was, a, he was a charming rogue, no matter which side of the aisle you were on. And um, anyway, the guy was legendary. Um, so, I mean, it's, it's not that she was mentored under him and she had a you know personal relationship, which allowed her to be politically moved up. I mean, there's... I mean, that, that's the type of stuff that happens in politics. People just don't like talking about it too much. It was a little mm -hmm. bit more outre with the two of them than it normally would be. But I mean, she distanced herself from him when she needed to, as you lay out in that book. Right. And uh, that was not the end of her political success in California. She reached uh, the pinnacle of success in, um, in statewide office uh, as AG. Mm -hmm. um, how did that work out for her? Because I don't, I seem to recall that it was problematic. Right. She had a very difficult time towards the end of her, you know, she, she won re-election pretty easily without an opponent with tons of funding. This is when she was San Francisco district attorney after she ran with Willie Brown's backing on the front end. 
she's sort of criticizing Willie Brown and saying, you know, he no longer matters, even though he was quietly working behind the scenes to support her campaign. Then she d goes through a pretty, pretty basic couple, four years. She has a few scandals, a few incidents, you know, but she's kind of running a middle of the road type law and order campaign. You know, her big comment is her big proponent, her, and she wrote a book about it, right? Right before she runs called smart on crime. We're not going to be tough on crime or weak on crime. We just have to get smarter with more technology. So that was kind of a, a common thread throughout her career. But yeah, when she ran for attorney general, she already had the entire Democrat society lined up behind her. She also had the support of the state political elites. When you run for office in California, you're not necessarily trying to convince the voters that you that you deserve to be where you want to be because it's a one-party town. You just have to convince the elites that you belong on this that stage, you deserve the position, and that you're not going to embarrass them. So I guess that's sort of what she ran as. There was a, a former Facebook attorney named Chris Kelly, I believe is his name, who tried to challenge her for the primary, the Democratic primary, uh, even though he spent millions of dollars. This kind of happens in California a lot, where you'll get this billionaire that wants to like, hey, I deserve, I can, now that I have all this money, I could just run for office and win in California. Well, no, that's impossible without the uh, approval of the state party elites you literally have no chance just appealing to the voters, no matter how much money you spend on television. And that's kind of what Kamala, she was already anointed to take position as the attorney general at the time. And then she ultimately ran against Steve Cooley uh, in a very difficult year for Republicans. Cooley almost beat her. She definitely had the weakest showing of all California Democrats, uh, but she ultimately pulled out ahead of Cooley in the three weeks after, as more and more ballots were ma magically found and there were recounts and and sort of eventually barely scraped out a win over Steve Cooley, probably the last relevant Republican in California at that time. To this day, maybe Steve yeah. Garvey. Will, maybe Steve Garvey. <laughs> right. I love Garvey. I'm a, you know, a huge Dodger fan from when I was a small boy and I was a huge Garvey fan, but well, at any rate, less said about that, the better. We're talking about <laughs> amateur hour. <laughs> Kamala Harris in the White House by Charlie Spearing. Let's let's stick to that. Um, you know, and you're right. I mean, and you lay this out in the book. I mean, Democrats were winning those races. This is before the the adoption of the so-called jungle primary, too. This was when each party had their own primaries. Um, and the other statewide races were won by double digits all the Democrats won by double digits. Kamala Harris came in with a 0.8% uh, win in the end. And as you say, because these ballots were just flowing in, flowing in, flowing in, because California is actually one of the worst states when it comes to running their elections. I think they don't, they don't get enough blame for this. Uh, and it's mm. an ongoing problem. Okay. Uh, they just, they just have a terrible system. Um, they do a bunch of mail stuff, which delays everything. They don't require it to be in before the election, et cetera, et cetera. I mean, there's all sorts of things that need to be cleaned up, but Democrats don't want to do it. Um, so she wins election there. She gets to be AG. Um, mm -hmm. And then her next step is going to the Senate. Um, so tell us a little bit about how that transpired, because again, I don't think that her her tenure as attorney general was terribly distinguished in California. 
Yeah, I write how she always talks about today, how, or in when she was running her presidential campaign, about how she wanted to be the one to open the doors to activists and make change happen. But I sort of outline that even though she was attorney general um, in the era of Black Lives Matter, she was also running for re-election. So she didn't support anything that the activists wanted. She did some some basic, uh, you know, light touches of we need to make sure our police force is more diverse and we need to make sure we have body cameras. And I'm going to launch a body camera program for my state bodyguards. And there's only a little over a dozen. So, but it's like, this is, this is a way to show her support for these kinds of issues without taking any really tough positions. She earned the endorsement of the state police unions and everything in California. And ultimately it was, she was sort of eyeing the idea of running against um, Gavin Newsom for governor of California. Gavin Newsom was, I think, the lieutenant governor at the time. So they're both sort of careening towards this ultimate collision, both protégés of Willie Brown, both veterans of San Francisco politics. And lo and behold, all of a sudden, Senator Barbara Boxer steps down. And Newsom is one of the first to get out and says he has no interest in running for the seat. Um, and sort of, you know, there's a lot of other California Democrats that are interested as well. But Kamala really sees this as something that she would actually like, right? She sort of lives in the shadow of the Obama era. She can see that the Senate could be a pathway to the presidency. You know, it's pretty hard to run for president if you're governor of California, of a super liberal state. But hey, maybe if you're, a, you know, if you make your name in the Senate as some grand change maker, then maybe you can follow that same path as Obama. And I think that's why she ultimately ran for Senate. Party officials are sort of breathing a sigh of relief. They never wanted a Kamala versus Gavin fight. It was going to be very destructive. Um, and so ultimately, she faces off against Linda Sanchez, who is a Congress, long-term congressman in California. And for the people who watched politics at that time, she was just kind of an embarrassing opponent. And there were certainly a lot of funny things that we put in the book of their race between each other. And it was it was very easy for Kamala to sort of quickly dispatch her and, and get elected. And again, all the juice in these elections is on the Democratic primary side because Republicans just... They, they're, they're, they they keep looking for the magic candidate, right? Which is the reason why right. we got Steve Garvey. <laughs> <laughs> keep coming back yeah. to Steve Garvey because <laughs> the California GOP is just uh, tragically um, in a in a very bad position in that state. Um, mm -hmm. And it's hard to advance when you have you know in a one party state. I mean, the Democrats have been dominating the state for. Well, they were pretty close to dominating it when I left in 97. And mm -hmm. I don't think it was too long after that. He had the Arnold Schwarzenegger, you know, era such as it was. But I mean, right. at least since then, it's been all Democrats. Um, so she ends up landing in the U.S. Senate. It's a pretty easy ride to get there. Mm -hmm. And she's in the U.S. Senate for, and I'm trying to recall this, she's either there for three years. I think she was there for three That's years. Right. That's about right. Three yeah. years. Right? So she she gets elected as Hillary goes down in flames. And so as she's taking right. the stage, she's really she had already ripped up her speech. Now, it was supposed to be a triumphant speech demonstrating the year of the woman and how we were all breaking glass ceilings right and left. But with Hillary losing at the same time that she is winning, she redrafts her speech and sort of stands up 
and tries to cast herself as the new super superhero of the Democrat Party that's ready to go fight Donald Trump. That's a huge part of what she said that night after she won. And that's kind of the the mode that she's entering the Senate. As soon as she got to Washington, she gave a speech at the Women's March and was very much, this was sort of the tone that she wanted to strike as soon as she was entering the Senate. You know, and I, and I think, and your book, I think, covers this, is that there's early indications of, you know, Vice President word salad even from the get-go here. But it didn't get a lot of attention because she was one of 100 people in a, right. in a body. But it sort of starts to emerge when she decides that she's going to try to take the lead, her and Feinstein, Diane Feinstein, try to take the lead in torpedoing Brett Kavanaugh's nomination to the Supreme Court. And I think that this is really the first time, and you you detail this in, in your book, Amateur Hour, <laughs> Kamala Harris in the White House. By the <laughs> hint, 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 hint. This is... This is available for purchase in your bookstores or on Absolutely. <laughs> Easy one click on Amazon. <laughs> Easy one click. You got an audio version of it, by the way? Yes, I do. It was. Uh, <laughs> did you read it for yourself? I did, I did not read it myself. They uh, suggested getting an expert to do it. So uh, got a really great guy who's got this kind of classic uh, Chicago type style voice of, of days gone by. So give it a little gangster feel. There you go. Chicago <laughs> thing's kind of cool too, considering the whole Obama thing. And yeah. Yeah, it, it's fascinating the difference between, you know, Obama, one party town, uh, and certainly Kamala, one party state. This is how these kind of candidates emerge. It's very interesting the details behind that. You're exactly correct. And there are some of these details in here, but tell us a little bit. I don't want to give too much away. There's a lot of stuff that we want people to read for the first time in this book. And we're going to get to a couple of uh, lessons that we can take away from this uh, a little bit later on in the conversation, but um, yeah, even, and apart your, even apart from your book, I'm sorry, even apart from your book, I I know that this was not a good debut for her on the national stage. I mean, she just really didn't have any clue as to what she was doing in the in these hearings, mm -hmm. uh, and maybe the fact that Sheldon Whitehouse was just absolutely that crap insane this may have deflected some of the attention off this but she did poorly mm -hmm. yeah in the senate you know we know of her in the senate because every once in a while she'd get these viral clips that would come out of her pestering and witness uh john kelly for instance for dhs uh sessions of course for doj um and she'd get just this one moment that would go viral but there was all, you know, for all the successes that we saw and the the content, the, the sort of intellectual background and of what she was actually trying to prove is kind of left behind. But for all the ones that were successes, there were a lot of misses as well. And sort of detail a couple of those in, from the Senate days. And, and certainly her, her fight against Kavanaugh, she was swinging wildly and really losing her temper a lot behind the scenes and just kind of... But at the same time, she was kind of auditioning because she had clearly wanted this to be her moment in the spotlight. But a lot of it fell flat. And what was funniest is that going back and looking at those Senate hearings, uh, the Kamala moments, at one time she tries to shoehorn the whole narrative of that little girl was me into the Kavanaugh hearings and talking about how she used to ride to school on a school bus and how, you know, in a segregated society and, and without 
you know, without the right Supreme Court justice, maybe she would not be allowed to go to school or become a senator. So it's funny seeing that pop up again, even though it went nowhere until, you know, the, the primary campaign, she tried to use it against Joe Biden. But yeah, it just felt a lot of it felt performative and really scripted. And there's a reason why staffers sort of referred to her as a member of the clown caucus, you know, people who aren't serious about doing the job, people who just want to run for president. Yeah, the whole freedom. <laughs> which still in the book, freedom. Um, very interesting background on her family life, or you know, family of origin life too. By the way, um, that okay, yeah. book. I don't want to get too much into that. That I definitely want people to read from the book, Amateur Hour. Um, <clears throat> and it's at this point though that she's really entering the national consciousness, and you know, a lot of these incidents to this day are 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 widely known widely discussed but you're bringing some background it is you just mentioned this in terms of the kavanaugh stuff about how staffers on the hill are beginning to react to her um, and seeing her as an an unserious person right you don't right. get part of the clown caucus by being a serious person she's an unserious person who doesn't do her homework isn't prepared and that keeps coming across over and over and over again, and nowhere more so than in her campaign for the nomination, yeah, for the presidential nomination in 2020. Right. And Charlie, I just want to set this up for readers. She was she was all but handpicked to win that nomination. California right. moved this primary up <clears throat> that year uh, to be one of the first primaries in order for her to win a whole bunch of delegates and dominate the rest of the primary race. You had uh, the whole party calling for a a woman of color to highlight their, their commitment to diversity. And she was the only person on stage that could realistically have fit that bill, right? They had women, they had people of color. They didn't have a woman of color of, of a stature of a U.S. senator. What happened? Yeah, it's interesting because I tracked this from when she's attorney general. The media and a lot of the talking heads in the media had already started to refer to her as the next Obama. You know, this is kind of the way they view, this shows you how the the way they view people through a lens. Like it's not the next Kamala Harris, it's the next Obama, the female Obama. <laughs> so she's already kind of being propped up to, to feature this, sort of be the next great person. Um, by the time she hits the ground in Iowa, or when she you know, announces her campaign, a lot of even Republicans and Democrats and the the sort of the elite broadcasters view her as one of the strongest candidates to go against President Donald Trump. But when she hits the ground in Iowa and starts campaigning, when she starts doing debates and gets challenged on some of her issues, when she tries to define terms and tries to explain what she believes, it's a giant mess. And that's part of what I found most surprising is going back and looking at her campaign. Yeah, we watched the debates. Uh, I was mostly focused on Pete Buttigieg during that campaign, the 2021. But uh, yeah, going back and looking at Kamala's in detail, the signs are all there. And it's just shocking to think that people would see all that and somehow think that she was prepared to run on a national ticket and serve as, as a vice president. You know, we're, we're coming up to the end of this because I know you got other interviews that you got to get to. I, I want to ask you to give us one thing that you think is going to be surprising to readers coming out of Amateur Hour, Kamala Harris in the White House, uh, a new book that you should buy. Um, 
what do you think is going to be one of the more surprising revelations that comes out of your reporting there? Yeah, I think when when Biden first took office, I think a lot of people expected that Kamala would be secretly running the White House from behind the scenes. But and I think people fewer people actually think that after seeing sort of the caliber of her per political performance. But that's sort of what I find to be absolutely true. I was surprised to find how many Democrats in D.C. really don't like her or don't care for her. And they're certainly not going to stick out their neck and defend her. Uh, they really can't really criticize her, though, because the way the Democratic Party is now, you criticize a woman of color for anything and you're automatically a sexist and a racist. So there's a huge behind the scenes, just everyone's trying not to talk about it, but it's so glaringly there. And that's why I was really excited to report this. It's like, you might think that Kamala has the support of the Democrat Party, but no, they're terrified by the whole idea that perhaps Joe Biden might not run for re-election and that he, he might, they might have to put Kamala up against Trump. That's their greatest fear. And I think that not many Democrats will say that publicly, but I think that's 100% where they are. And a lot of the Democrat donors are very terrified by the idea as well. They all already have their sort of hand-picked candidate in mind if that ever happens. Well, if you want to know about that, you have to buy the book. Sorry, I'm, I, I could ask Charlie the answer <laughs> to that question, but you got to buy the book. Uh, by the way, I refer to that as the, uh, the Kamala conundrum. They can't get around. That's very, uh, man, I wish I had thought of that. That would have made a good chapter name. <laughs> well, when you write the follow-up, feel free to steal it. I mean, you know, it's a it's open source as far as I'm concerned. All right. Amateur hour, Kamala Harris in the White House. Let's hope not. Uh, Charlie Spearing is the author. He's my guest today. Go out and buy the book. And Charlie, good luck on the book. Enjoy your book tour. And uh, and we'll we'll chat again very soon. Thanks, Ed. It's been great talking to you.